0: Hey there, it's Hunter, and welcome to Throwback Thursday. Most Thursdays, we are going to re-release one of my favorite episodes from the archives. So unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you had, chances are that you are going to get something new listening to it this time around.
1: It's the middle path because half of your toddler's tantrum is about not feeling heard, not mm-hmm. feeling understood. And so if you could hear your child and understand your, to- your child still settle and still set a limit, still say no
0: but they will calm down that much faster. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 217. Today, we're talking about how to reduce toddler tantrums with Rebecca Hirschberg. Welcome to the Mindful Parenting podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Parenting, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 25 years. i the creator of the Mindful Parenting course, and I'm the author of the international bestseller, Raising Good Humans, and now Raising Good Humans Every Day, 50 Simple Ways to Press Pause, Stay Present, and Connect with Your Kids. Welcome back, my friend. Oh my goodness. these uh, we are We are in crazy times, and we are all home with our kids. If you're listening in the future, this is when we are in spring 2020, when everybody is sheltering at home. As of the coronavirus pandemic. But that is not what this podcast is about, my friend. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Dr. Rebecca Hirschberg. She's a clinical psychologist, founder of Little House Calls, author of The Tantrum Survival Guide, and mother of two young sons. And we're going to talk about how to survive toddler tantrums. I mean, if you're anything like me, these make you... Pull your hair out, and they trigger deep, intense feelings. Right? They're they're maddening, stressful, and exhausting for everyone involved. So, what can you do to keep your cool and to help your child calm down? Rebecca Hirschberg she shares with us the science of child development and the art of managing your child's tantrums. And I want you to listen for a few things. So, you listen for how. The really important fact that we need to remember that tantrums are normal and that we shouldn't totally expect to stop them. I know, that's sad, but true. (laughs) Listen for the development pieces about toddlers and preschools being rigid, impulsive, and egocentric, how it's this is just part of their development. Your child is not a sociopath. And that certain parenting styles can inadvertently reinforce tantrum. So we're gonna dive into that and learn how to not do that. We don't want to do that, right? So so yes, so I'm excited for you to join me as I talk to Dr. Hirschberg. And before we dive in, I just want to quickly let you know that the mindful parenting membership is going to open soon. The membership of course um, includes the eight module groundbreaking mindful parenting course. That is transformative. And um, this membership uh, round, we are going to be opening up for scholarships. We'll be opening it up for scholarships before the general membership opens. So if you are curious about that, make sure you are on my email list because I'll be sending an email about that. And we'll be doing a free training from March, or I'm sorry, May 6th through 11th. Where you'll be learning how to stop yelling, why your child doesn't listen to you, how to create cooperative kids, cooperative kids without losing your temperature, temperature, (laughs) your temper, (laughs) and more. So everyone is welcome to the Mindful Parenting free training. I even know Mindful Parenting members do it again because it's just such a great um, reminder of some really important fundamental facts about kids and development and parenting. And you can join that at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And I hope to see you there. This is a really good one to share with your friends, of course. So I think that's it for announcements. I hope you are safe and well. And I hope that this podcast helps you through your never-ending, endless groundhog days with your children these days. All right, let's dive in. Join me at the table as I talk to Rebecca Hirschberg. The April 20th Mindful Parenting Retreat Day is filling up fast. Join me and other parents in Wilmington, Delaware for a day of rest and relaxation, mindfulness and mindful communication practices, and a live podcast too. And my special guest for the live podcast is, drumroll please, Lynetta Willis. You know her from episode 366 and 400. She is a psychologist and sought-after speaker who teaches her triggered to transformed program to struggling parents. Join us and bring a friend to this powerful day-long retreat in Wilmington, Delaware on April 20th, 2024. But hurry, space is limited. Go to com slash retreat to get your spot now. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat. Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. I I love it. So I'm really happy to actually be a guest on it. Well, I'm I'm thrilled because, you know, as I I, I said to you, I I have sometimes I get parenting books just flow in the mail to me now because of the Mindful Mama podcast. And I had a little resistance to reading the tantrum t- survival guide. Um, and then I dove in and it's so readable. And it's so right on. And I was just like, I just got an hour and a half like sucked away, like pleasantly like enjoying and circling and underlying and having a good time. It's a great book. Well, thank you. That
1: is the highest compliment works from a busy mama. appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, so so yeah, so you you there are so many things in here I wanna dive into and I'm I'm really excited about this, but we we Want to talk about? I think where, where you d- you start with your book, which I think is so important, is that tantrums are normal. Yes, tantrums are normal; they are expected.
1: Um, you know, whenever I see headlines on the parenting, blog, you know, stop tantrums in their tracks or five ways to stop tantrums, it's always, you know, my reaction is no. We we not only is that an impossible task, but it's not one that we would want. They are actually a healthy sign of development. We can, as I talk about in the book, decrease their frequency, their intensity, their duration. There are times we can tell um, our kids are out of sorts and having many more tantrums than than we might want. But generally, it's, it's a really healthy, normal part of development.
0: All right. Yeah. And that's what I've always kind of come to understood coming around the other side of it when it wasn't in the like, pulling my hair out and wanting to you know, die in the midst of the tantrums. But yeah, that it's a a big emotional release for for kids who their brains aren't developed yet. And you talk a lot about this, about the brain development as well. But you also, before we talk about the brain development, you you talk of some, many parents are often really pretty convinced that their child's tantrums are not normal. Like, but you haven't seen my kid's tantrums and i i know you get a lot of messages like this so just to be really clear what is within the realm of normal and you also talk about five possible red flags so i think this is important to to get out there too
1: yeah so so unfortunately i'll just start by saying in case people are waiting with bated breath unfortunately there's no formula there's no you know well if you're if your toddler is having this many tantrums a day that are this long, then that's nothing to worry about. But then there's a threshold we cross and suddenly it's worrisome. It's not unfortunately and you know, somewhat obviously that simple. For the most part, um, just anecdotally, the majority of people who have told me that I've never seen tantrums like the way their kid is tantruming. Um, that is generally not the case. We all respond extra powerfully to our own child's tantrums, in part due to evolution and the fact that our child's cries and shrieks are supposed to get us all worked up, um, and so they seem so much worse. Um, that said, we do look when when I'm doing an assessment to see is this a general, you know, expected type of tantrum, or might there be other concerns? And other concerns don't mean, by the way. Um, horrific things coming down the pike. It just means there might be, let's say, a sensory issue or some stress or or whatever it is. Um, I'm going to look at duration. So I'm going to look at, is the tantrum often over 25 minutes? Um, not once in a while um, and not when your child is sick or hasn't slept, um, but is it often more than 25 minutes? And I will always encourage parents to set a timer because when it's your own child, you will swear that it's been two hours, and it's only been, you know, 10 minutes. (laughs) So true. That's where all our epic stories come from. (laughs) Exactly. And we can, it's often, if you, if you remember like that horrible tantrum that your kid had, then chances are that was an outlier. And that's kind of the point, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, what about that one at the airport that was two hours long? And right there was that one at the airport. And if that's happening all the time, then there might be reason for concern. Um, true inability for a child to self-soothe sort of at all. Um, so a lot of times when kids are left to their own devices, not you know 100% ignored and ideally in the presence of a loving adult, but still not necessarily with any major intervention, kids can pull themselves together um, after a certain period of time. And there are kids that really cannot at all and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. That might be something to worry about. Um aggression happening more uh frequently and severely than is normally expected. So again, some hitting, some scratching, once in a while biting. That's all pretty much within the realm of normal.
0: Sorry. But, <laughs> like, a question. lot of us worry that, you know, I might my, my child doesn't see anyone hitting. Why are they hitting? But that's That fight, flight, or free stress response is flight, flight, right? That's a big part of that. Exactly. And also just,
1: I don't have the words. And I'm saying, you know, we all, when we are angry or stressed or upset, we have things that we can do, even if we don't have the words for it, we, you know, frankly, go for a run or, you know, there are ways we let out our physical energy when our physical energy is being impacted by our emotions. And our kids need to do that, too. They just don't know the, you know, quote, unquote, socially acceptable ways to do that. Um, and so, but again, if your child is often scratching or biting or, or hitting, again, in a real sort of destructive way, not, um, I want another cookie and so I'm going to, you know, push you, um, you know, that's an important line. Um, frequency, and I don't remember offhand, frankly, the, the number. <laughs> Um, and you you have the book in front of you, but it's, it's something, you know, really, really high if it's more than, you know, a few a day, every single day in a period of a month or something like that. And also kids who have a lot of tantrums um, outside of their home and with adults other than the regular caregivers, um, it's counterintuitive. A lot of times parents will say to me very upset, you know, my child only is like this with me great at school they're great at their mommy and me class they're great you know um and that's actually a positive sign as much as it's not a fun one <laughs> when your child is having just as many tantrums or um more tantrums with more unfamiliar adults and in outside settings that's potentially a mm-hmm. so, cause
0: so cuz kids are they're doing a lot of work to hold it together in those outside places and then with us they're feeling comfortable, loved, and accepted, so they can let loose. That's yeah. the idea behind that, right? And just exhausted.
1: Yeah. And that's the other piece, is that they're working so hard that they just, they know they don't have to work hard, which is what you're saying, and so then, they, and then they're exhausted. And it used to be that there was this real misconception um, that I just want to correct for anyone who may still hold on to it. It was a misconception that, well, my child doesn't do this in other places or with other people, so they clearly know what they're doing. Oh, like a manipulative thing. Exactly. And that's just no longer the way, you know, a lot of times the older generations still say things like that. Mm. Um, and that's just no longer the way we think about it. We think about it as kids who, again, feel more comfortable at home, but not even in a conscious way per se. It's not like, oh, I'm home from school. I can fall apart now. It's just that they work hard to keep it together and they learn early on where it's most necessary to do that. And then they're exhausted. And they let it out at home. And in part, that's what we model. You know, we we, you know, even if I was on a really in a really bad mood right now on this podcast, I wouldn't start, you know, biting your head off. <laughs> <laughs> Rude and inappropriate and you know, completely really ridiculous, so much so that you're laughing. Our kids learn that really early on. No, they're not going to show that necessarily in school or out with their manny or their grandparents. Um, so that's just important to keep in mind.
0: All right, cool. So Dear listener, it's normal. It's normal. I know it uh, sucks. It's normal. We're all we're all going through this, or have gone through this, and and and, and some of us have had had vasectomy, so we won't go back. But <laughs> <laughs> so, tell us about the. I would love for you to dive into the brain development because this is so fascinating. Because when we can understand it, just as we we understand just what you know what you were explaining right there it makes it all so much less personal. We stop making it about us or about my child in particular, but this is just how the brain develops. And you say that parents are really overestimating our kids' capacity for self-control. So tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so that's certainly something anecdotally that I see all the time. And there was a study a couple years ago done by the Zero to Three Foundation in conjunction with the Bezos Foundation where they surveyed, you know, thousands of parents of all different socioeconomic backgrounds and ethnicities around the United States and found that over 50% of parents were way overestimating specifically their 2 and 3 year olds capacity to inhibit their impulses and specifically not to be aggressive. So in other words, as parents we expect that our 2 and 3 year olds are not going to be aggressive and are going to be able to control their impulses when they're upset and typically that's not the case the way the brain develops it, it, when we are born the, the most primitive part of the brain, those neural connections are already there. So the parts of the brain that allow us to breathe and blink, um, and even experience some very basic emotions, love, disgust, that's all there very, very early on. And then the parts of the brain devoted to emotion. So the amygdala, um, and and those brain centers develop, and so you've got your kid experiencing really strong emotions. And the last part of the brain to develop is the cerebral cortex. And when I say develop, again, I mean the neural connections, and specifically the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that's right in the front and that's thought of as the air traffic control center. And I love that analogy. Right? <laughs> we have to talk about that more. Yeah, it's um and it's not mine, it's from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child and it's basically, you know, if your air if your air traffic control center is not yet developed and you've still got airplanes, you know, coming and going. There are gonna be crashes and it's gonna be crazy and because the prefrontal cortex is devoted to executive functioning. And executive functioning is things like impulse control, judgment, reasoning. All of all of those um, holding, you know, sustained attention and those parts of the brain are not developed fully and brace yourselves parents, but they're not developed fully until you're in your early twenties, <laughs> but they're certainly barely developed when kids are young. And to the extent they are developed, and this is a really important piece, they are not online to use a colloquial term, but they're not online when we are feeling highly emotional. And parents will say that a lot. Parents will say, for example, you know, my son completely understands that it's not okay to hit his sister. We talk about it. He knows that it hurts. He knows that that using your body instead of your words is not okay. And then his sister will come take something he's playing with and he'll smack her in the face. And the answer is right. Because as soon as he feels that frustration or that anger or that jealousy or whatever it is all those cognitive skills disappear, and he's being ruled by emotion. And just understanding that that's, again, inherent to the toddler brain and the young child brain really helps, as you said, understand why your child seems to have this disconnect. The disconnect is real. (laughs) The parts of the brain are not yet communicating with each other in those moments. Um, As adults, we experience that sometimes as well. Yeah. Yet we can usually bring our brain to communicate you know, more appropriately, certainly much faster, because again, it's it's more further in its development.
0: Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. You know, some healthy skepticism in my life has served me well. And if you're like that, if you can spot a too good to be true health hack from about a mile away, you read labels like it's your job, congratulations you're a skeptic. And Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. I take Ritual's Essentials for Women 18 Plus every single day, morning and at lunch. And I am feeling great. I love this vitamin. Ritual's Essentials for Women is USP verified so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. Plus, Ritual Vitamins are vegan, non-GMO, Project Verified, Gluten and Major Allergen Free, Certified B Corp, and Made Traceable. They select lower carbon packaging, they prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients and set ambitious climate goals. Plus, Ritual is a female founded B corp, which means they are responsible to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mindful. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18+ Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com/mindful for 25% off.
2: Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced. So differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them
0: We've had, we've had a lot more practice with it, but, you know, that's what I teach all the time to parents who are frustrated when they're losing it. It's like, yes, those emotional centers, that amygdala is literally kind of bypassing that prefrontal cortex. So you're not able to access all those, you know, you may know you don't want to yell and you want to use your quiet voice and you want to use these new communication skills you've learned. And it's, Takes a lot of intention and practice to be able to bring all those things online when you want them to, because that, you know, that that amygdala, that's much faster than than the executive function. Yeah. Needs,
1: again, if you think about surviving, it needs to be the the fastest acting. Um, but I, you know, we have the capacity somewhere in there. The toddlers and the little kids don't even have that capacity, and so I often joke when I'm giving talks you know, I'll, I'll tell someone, you know, someone will raise their hand to ask a question and I'll ask them to repeat the question back to me in Japanese. (laughs) Typically it's not someone who speaks Japanese and they'll sort of look puzzled and I'll say again, no, I want to hear it in Japanese and you, you know, I don't let it go on too long. Obviously, The idea is this, this puzzlement and this frustration of, no, you're asking me to do something that I cannot do. And so where do we go from here? And obviously, if I were to let that go, the person would get incredibly frustrated and angry and potentially even walk out and leave the talk. That's what we are doing with our toddlers. When we say things like, use your words, use your words, or why do you hate your brother? Why do you hate your brother? Come on. Why? 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 Mm -hmm. It cannot answer that question. They maybe will make something up in the moment because they know that they're supposed to do it. Um, but usually those types of approaches really just makes things worse because we are highlighting and demanding our child do something that they are not developmentally capable of doing.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we, in some way, we kind of hope that we're teaching them, like, use your words. It seems like a nice, seems like a good thing to say, right? But it's, they're just incapable of this. So it probably makes things ultimately, ultimately worse. So what are, what are some of the causes of tantrums? Why, why, why now? And what's, what's happening? (laughs)
1: Right. So, so, um. So I opened the book actually with an example, I think, of of a child in a supermarket who wants more cookies, which is sort of prototypical, you know, ripe for a tantrum situation. And I sort of say that you are an onlooker and you are watching this toddler in the cookie aisle fall apart because his mom is not getting or his dad is not getting him Oreos. And certainly you could say the proximal cause in that moment is that he is not getting the thing that he wants. But what if you found out that he had skipped his nap? Well, then you've suddenly got tiredness as a cause. And what if you then find out that he just got a new baby sibling four days ago, and this is his first one-on-one time with his parent? Then that's a potential cause, all the emotions behind that. What if mom or dad is always anxious in supermarkets because... They have social anxiety, and so they're never quite as connected as they want to be, and that's activating for a kid. So in other words, you really have to start small, but then look globally and sort of contextually um, at why the child might be having a tantrum. So tantrums are caused, first of all, as we said, by sort of the stage of brain development. Second of all, I like to highlight that they are an interaction. So whoever they're with at the time is contributing as well. Then there's all kinds of very basic things that we know: hunger, tiredness, you know, any kind of stress on the system. Over um, the system, excuse me, overstimulation, um, sensory overload, all that stuff. And then, you know, global context. And I, you know, I have to mention right now we are all stuck at home <laughs> due to current events. Um, it's a bit in many families, not all, a bit of a powder keg. And little children don't have the capacity to say, "Wow, this is new and stressful, and I'm confused and I'm uncertain." And instead, they will have their behavior be dysregulated. And so, there's a misconception that tantrums are always about not getting something I want or when my dad says no. Mm. Um, that might be on the surface, you know, what is actually setting off the behavior. However, these deeper emotional issues. Um, Anxiety, sadness, confusion, change of routine, uncertainty as to what's happening—all will contribute most likely to more tantrums because that's how children express their strong emotions.
0: And you actually recommend that parents go back to a recent tantrum and kind of dissect it and figure out what were some of the some of these many causes that could be contributing to it. And you call it that the chain. You, the chain analysis, yeah, it's a it's a term from um,
1: DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, Marsha Linehan. It's basically cognitive behavioral therapy with some mindfulness thrown in. Although anybody who really practices it will get offended at how simple that <laughs> description is. But essentially, it's this idea of looking at. Originally, it started with self injury with with clients who did a lot of self injury. Doing a chain analysis, which means looking at what was happening you know, way before what, you know, what were the links in the chain essentially that led to this incident? And so the links can be, again, what was the, how much sleep had your child gotten? How much sleep had you gotten? What mood were you in? What mood was your child in? Had you done anything unusual that day? Really looking at, and the book lays it out, but what are all the different possible links in the chain that led us to this particularly difficult tantrum? And I recommend that parents do that not because there's always going to be something you could have done differently or changed, but because patterns, if you do that for more than one tantrum, or if you do that at a time that tantrums really seem to be escalating, you often end up making a discovery that you might not have realized at first about why, you know, what's going on right now that's different. Uh, Sometimes it's, yeah, I didn't sleep. I I haven't slept for the past, you know or I haven't slept well for the past four nights, my toddler's having a lot more tantrums, I bet it's because I'm a little bit short with my toddler because I haven't slept. Maybe if I try sleeping more tonight, the tantrums will improve, that sort of connection.
0: Yeah, making those, it's beautiful because that's in the mindful parenting course I teach, I encourage people to track their own triggers for their own tantrums, right, For for our, you know, and We can do the same thing with our kids just to have more awareness, more understanding. So we can, then we can say, help figure out those, those links in the chain. I love that. And you, you talk about how certain parenting styles can inadvertently reinforce tantrums. So I think this is really important for us to know. We all, every listener wants to know, oh my gosh, am I doing the right things, saying the right things? So what, and, and I really appreciate that. Um. You really take, uh, and, and what you teach in in um, in the Tantrum Survival Guide is the middle path, which I think is beautiful emotionally. So, tell us about the parenting styles that can can reinforce tantrums.
1: So, there's sort of two. I mean, there's there's two main things I would say. There, one is when we inadvertently reinforce tantrums by giving them a lot of our attention and giving them more of our attention than we do. When our child is not having a tantrum, so I've worked with several families, and and let me just stop here to say that none of this is said with any judgment. Everyone is handling a lot of different things and doing the best they can. So this is it's more that it's helpful to have it pointed out so that you can see it if you didn't see it yourself. Um, but I've worked with a lot of families who, when we really dive deep, we realize that their child gets more attention when they're having a tantrum than when they're sitting and playing. Quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because tantrums are hard to avoid. They are super loud. They are potentially destructive. They are distressing. Um, and so a parent who might otherwise be on his or her phone um, or trying to get some housework done or cooking a meal, whatever it is, will have to drop, or or one common one is paying attention to assembling, um, mm-hmm. will have to drop everything to pay attention to the tantrum. And that kids learn. Again, not in a manipulative way, not in a conscious way, but they learn this is how I get my mom's attention. And so if we can shift that and start to really give more attention in an intentional, mindful way to our kids when they are emotionally regulated, when they get frustrated and don't have attention, right? Hmm. Wow, did you, I sent this to my son literally yesterday. I said, when I said that you had to turn your iPad off, you just grunted. Give me a high five for the grunt because you didn't shriek. You didn't throw it. You did, you know, I mean, it's like really emphasizing these baby steps toward emotion regulation. The other thing that I think really can unfortunately inadvertently increase tantrums is when we respond without any understanding or empathy to what are often very big deals to our kids. So, Back to the Oreo example. I have Oreos on the brain, clearly. Um, you know, if, if a child wants another Oreo and we respond rationally, like, well, you already had two, you can't have another. And they start amping up, but I want, you know, but I want one, I want another one. And we stick, we're very rational. No, you had two, you had two. That doesn't mean anything to a child. Or if we go even further with it, as parents sometimes do, again, with the best of intentions, enough. You had two, you had a dessert yesterday, you're having dessert for dinner, we're not, you know, and getting sort of annoyed at this demand. The fact is your toddler doesn't understand nutritional information. Your toddler doesn't understand that all the Oreos in the world aren't there just for this moment. They don't have a sense of time and space. And so to them, they really, really are getting increasingly frustrated that here's this whole package of Oreos. And you're telling them that they can't have them. And so just acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. sweetie, I know there are so many Oreos here. I know you saw the whole package and you want just one more. And I'm saying, no, that stinks. I can see on your face how much you want another cookie. You know what? I wouldn't even, if I were you, I wouldn't even want one other cookie. I'd want a hundred other cookies, you know, and, and, and to play with it and connect over it. There's such an opportunity to connect with your child if you don't see it just as black and white um, which is funny because we're talking about Oreos but um <laughs> <laughs> you too. have them on the bridge um you know if you don't see it just as I can either give in and give another Oreo or I can just toe the line and keep saying no over and over and over and, and it. it's a middle path it's the middle path because because your half of your toddler's tantrum is about not feeling heard not mm-hmm. feeling understood. And so, if you could hear your child, and understand your ta- your child, and still set a limit, and still say no, but they will calm down that much faster.
0: Yay, oh, man! Yeah, that reflecting back like that's the step we skip over so often. We just want to solve it, make it go away. We don't want to reflect like that whole piece and it and I s- being seen and heard is so so huge. It's amazing. So you also talk about how how toddlers have these five characteristics and it's really i think this is really important to understand why t- toddlers in particular are so prone to this to tantrums and the, these five characteristics again having to do with their development um and and so um so yeah so this Go ahead. Take it away, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I don't want to go with this. I got this. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, so I referenced the other one before, which is this sort of um, formally called egocentrism, um, which basically means that toddlers' brains prevent them from being able to see other perspectives. And so they do not understand, for example, when you're in the supermarket and you won't buy them a candy bar, why would the candy bars even be there? if it weren't for me right here and right now, because I don't understand that there are other people out there that have needs. Um, and we treat our toddlers as if they are fully socialized human beings who understand generosity and selfishness. And, and, and so we interpret that as selfish or greedy or whatever it is. And it's, it's against being taking it personally. It's just not, um, they have only their own perspective. There's a great, um, research study, and I think it shifts at about age four, where kids develop something called theory of mind. Mm. So if you have, for example, a bag of Pepperidge Farm goldfish, and you fill it with peanuts, and you do this in front of a young child, and then you say, you know, your mommy is going to come through the door. What do you think she is going to think is in this bag. And little kids up until about 4 will say, "Well, she'll think peanuts are in it." Because they do not understand that anybody else could have knowledge or information that they don't have. Whereas then they reach an age that they'll say, "Oh, she'll think it has goldfish in it. I know it has peanuts in it because I saw you put the peanuts in it." But the outside Is clearly a goldfish bag, and so she'll think it's goldfish. And when that happens, a world of opportunity opens up. But before that, again, think about how confusing the world must be in some ways when you really think you're the only person in it. And (laughs) people are constantly telling you that there's reasons you can't have things. (laughs) It's it's so (laughs) infuriating. (laughs) Infuriating. What do you mean I can't have this? This is here. It's in front of me. What do you know? Um, Yeah. And very so, in the present
0: moment, exactly. They're very in the present moment. So that's one. Another one is rigidity. So well, parents, well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ellen, Can I go back to egocentrism for a second? Oh, because sure. I think that's so important to understand. Also, too that this this egocentrism, like the word, uh, the we have a little baggage. I think around the word egocentric. Right? We use it to mean all these very negative things, but it really just means what. Dr. Hirschberg is saying, like, that they can't understand that there are other people. But at the same time, little kids can have empathy too for other people's hurt feelings. So I wouldn't, and I've seen this in my clients in my course that kids, little kids as young as two, can have you know, can say, oh, I didn't really, you know, they didn't, they didn't finally realize things affected their mommy that way.
1: Um, And it's an important distinction that you would only think about in a conversation like this, because the word empathy is used typically to cover all of it. But there is a distinction between having empathy in terms of seeing, for example, on the playground or when I'm going to see another kid cry, and Mm -hmm. then knowing that that person needs your help is a different developmentally from really being able to change. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, for example, I remember so clearly, because it was as I was writing the book, saying something to my older one who at the time, was, you know, only three or so, but he asked me for something, you know, this always happens with parents, like if you're holding 25 things and then your kid says, can you hold this for nothing? <laughs> but this was something where he was doing something. I was doing, I think, 10 things at the same time. And he said, well, you know, I want a snack or we get me a snack, whatever it was. And I said, does it look like I'm doing anything? Sort of sarcastic. Does it look like I'm doing? And he looked at me and sort of complete, you know. And he said, "Yeah." So you know, like one like <laughs> okay, you know, and and that's the egocentrism. It's like, yeah, I guess that you're doing other things, but I have a need, and so that obviously comes first. Um, and that's the piece that that is missing, and that is infuriating <laughs> and that then, then respond to
0: in that infuriated way can create. Yeah, it's not, it's not personal. It's not that your child is a sociopath either. They're also impulsive and rigid. Tell us about that. Um, and just to the personal piece, I say
1: in the book, I did not make up the acronym, but it's helpful to so many parents. The acronym Q-tip, which is quit taking it personally, um, and just to have that, you know, hanging on your wall. Oh, I like that. <laughs> But they are rigid and impulsive, yes. So again, we overestimate our children's abilities to control their impulses, and that gets back to the example of when your child hits his sibling or when your child um, sees the fancy glass bowl and picks it up, even though he's been told a million times not to, for which my suggestion is always move the glass bowl, yes. But sometimes parents say, no, but he should know not to touch i've said a million times don't touch it and again he does know that doesn't mean he can manage his impulse when the sun hits it in a particular way and it looks shiny and awesome and so that again just recognizing no matter what your child knows cognitively that impulsive piece is there and it's not that they're actively disobeying you you know i hear that a lot i've told him not to run um he's clearly you know disrespecting me um which is such a personal interpretation of no, he's running because he just wants to run, and the part of his brain devoted to managing that impulse is not developed. Um, the rigidity piece is so interesting. I have parents ask me all the time if their children have you know OCD, um, and and that can develop very early on, but it is much much more rare <laughs> than parents think um, because. Little children are rigid because they are learning that the world is very big, and unpredictable, and that they don't have a lot of control in it. And so they really try to exert control over yeah. over smaller things. And exerting control may mean that the potatoes cannot, under any circumstances, touch the chicken, or. When you read this story, you have to read it in the exact same character voice every single time, and you cannot leave out a word because that you know. And and kids will throw tantrums over those sorts of things being altered. And again, because tantrums are interactions, parents will get increasingly frustrated. Like it's barely any chicken touching, barely any potato. Come on, you know. Um, it's scary. You're scaring me, Rebecca. <laughs> I've seen a lot of parents saying, I've been one too. Um, but, uh, But yeah, so that rigidity piece, again, if we understand where it's coming from and how it fits into the developmental trajectory, then we can have a lot more patience for it and tolerance for it, which is the key to decreasing some of these tantrum interactions.
0: Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break.
3: Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little
4: bit better. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids, because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I am Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.
0: Yeah, then we can take our side of the equation out of it, our anger, our frustration. I mean, if we can understand that this is just all brain development. This is no one's fault. There's no one's faults here. This is nothing to worry about. And let's, I love it. Q-tip. We're going to Q-tip baby. Quit taking him personally. <laughs> uh-huh. And also, and just to have patience with yourself, because we are taught
1: not to interact with people that don't have fully developed prefrontal cortex. I mean, if you told me, you know, if you said, Hey, Rebecca, I I, I have a friend, I'd love for you to hang out with her. She's impulsive, she can be aggressive, she only thinks <laughs> about herself, she's incredibly rigid. I think you guys would get along great. How about dinner? I would. (laughs) Years and me and and yet that's what our children are like, and so it's. Please forgive yourself for not immediately having tolerance. You know we have to train ourselves to see it for what it is because of course our instincts are very appropriately.
0: No, this is not okay. Yeah, yeah, we haven't practiced all our lives. This is totally something new, that. You know, you don't encounter anywhere else in in the adult world for sure, um, it, unless you're in a very rare exception. So um, I want to talk about how to how to de-escalate them. And there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about this. but let's talk about how 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 what are some of the things that we can do to deescalate tantrums.
1: So, Deescalating tantrums, I think when we talk about, we have to think about where we are in the timeline of a tantrum, um, because how you prevent or deescalate really depends on that. So for example, um, if you are heading into a situation that is ripe for tantrums, like a supermarket or a big box store, there's so much you can do before you even are in that situation to sort of get ahead of it. Um, you can let your child know the expectations that you have in the store. You can come up with games and contests and whatnot that you can play while you're in the store. You can use physical touch, hold your child's hand. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ideas in the book and I can go through them specifically, but, but first the idea is just that so much of that is before a tantrum has even
0: emerged. So to like plan for this, don't yeah. You also mention our expectations. Like we shouldn't expect that kids are going to be able to necessarily hold it together. That, that, that is, that expectation is kind of leading to our own resentment. Right.
1: Right. So I think there's having, there's trying to have clear and realistic expectations and then, and then exerting agency, because we all know that once the tantrum is in in full speed or full form, there isn't actually a lot we can do. And we do feel very helpless and potentially if we're out and about embarrassed or, you know, and I would argue we have to learn to tolerate those feelings and get through them, but we do have a lot of agency beforehand. And so anticipation is, you know, potentially one of our greatest even just paying positive attention to your child. We're going to go to the supermarket and I'm going to engage my child in tasks of picking things out or finding different colors in the store. Or if they're learning record, um, excuse me, letters pointing out, let, you know, just engaging your child and giving your child the attention is going to the likelihood for tantrums. And so just using those types of tools or, um, People often say, Why does my toddler always have a tantrum when we're with extended family, when we're with my parents or my in laws? Um, A lot of times it's because you yourself are on edge. You're waiting to be judged. You're acting a little bit different in your parenting style than you do at home. And that's disconcerting for your toddler. When children feel a little disoriented or disconnected from you, they're more likely to have tantrums. And so, again, really thinking through proactively and intentionally, where is it that my child has the most tantrums, and how can I get ahead of that?
0: Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. We are supported by Causebox. I just discovered my favorite subscription. It is so fun, especially in this time of this sheltering at home time. Causebox, I need to tell you about it. It's a quarterly four times a year subscription box curated by women for women that is filled with all sorts of amazing products and brands that are ethical, sustainable, and have a positive mission to give back and make the world better. Every cause box is a limited edition and comes with six to eight full-size products. You can get everything from skincare to jewelry to homeware and accessories. The last four boxes sold out within days which I can believe because you get over $250 worth of products for only $50. I got my own sample box, and here are some of my the things that I happened to love. I love the bento box, which I can't wait to use again when we're having lunches away from the home. Duffel bag, this beautiful duffel bag. It came with a jade roller, these earrings that my daughter and I are loving, and even amazing... Skincare, it is everything is incredibly high quality, and the box is so beautiful. is just one of the best parts. Was just getting it in the mail. Of course, they ship it to you for free, and opening it, it feels like I got myself this huge surprise and this like bundle of gifts. I'd get this for myself. I'd get this for my mom, my sister, my friends, and it really is my new favorite subscription. The best part, of course, is that I got my listeners an exclusive discount. Go to www.causebox.com slash mindfulmama and use the code mindfulmama to get your first box for 30% off. As in, you can get your first box worth over $250 for less than $39. So go check out Causebox right now. I can tell you firsthand that you're going to love it. okay. And so we, we could look back at them, we could say, when are they tired? When are they hungry? Kind of go through that checklist, make sure you've had a snack, all of those things. And then are they and you, you have ideas for as the sort of tantrum is starting to ramp yeah. up. As it's starting to ramp up, again,
1: if you can empathize that off again, because there's the thing the child is upset about, which is then closely often followed by their reaction at not being heard or understood. So to use empathy, even if you don't necessarily feel it, ideally you get to a place where you feel it <laughs> People can sniff out authenticity and inauthenticity. However, just knowing that this is a tool you can use pragmatically. Um, so the empathy, you can absolutely try to redirect, try to use some humor, use some playfulness. Um, I think all of those strategies really can work. As the tantrum is mounting, I mean, back to the example of my son with the grunting, um, if I had handled the grunt in a different way, that grunt might have very much led to a tantrum, right? And grunt is is often a sign <laughs> that there's only coming down the pike. Um, and so just looking and also being aware, I know when, when um, parents who choose to potty train, you know, a lot of times they use a method where they look for what does my child do when when they have to pee, you know, like what's my child's pee pee dance. (laughs) Um, And this is like, what's my child's tantrums that, you know, is it a grunt? Is it that they start whining? Is it that they start sort of banging their head a little bit? You know, what are those signs and can you then kind of really bring on the empathy, the positive attention, the cuddle, you know, sometimes just a giant hug, that sort of.
0: So, this is where, as it's ramping up, we're seeing that. So, those signs of dysregulation, this is where we're going to come in and give lots of attention and offer ourselves as like a form of helping them regulate themselves. But then, there, you also talk about selective attention as the sort of tantrums going on. Can you tell us tell us about selective attention? Yeah, and this was another one of those moments where um, there's no
1: formula. Yeah. We're saying, well, wait a second, you told us not to reinforce the tantrum by giving it attention, and yet you're saying, put on the attention. Mm-hmm. And this is where you have to know your child and your family situation. And again, if you are only coming in with the positive attention and the hugs, once the whining or the grunting starts, then, yeah, it may be that you need to make a shift that, that pans out much wider than that. Um, Often, though, what happens is, is that as a child starts tantruming, parents get firmer and more angry, which then makes it worse. Mm-hmm. So there is a way to stay very calm and very loving without necessarily reinforcing the tantrum. Right. So sweet again, sweetie, I get it. You really want an Oreo. I know that your body knows how to calm down. And I'll wait. You know, I'll wait. I'm right here. You know, so you can sort of hold loving presence and not chastise your child and not escalate your child um, while also not necessarily zooming in with kisses and hugs and snuggles that are cozier than anything else you've done all day.
0: Uh, yeah because then i would want to have a tantrum every day for kisses hugs, right. and snuggles wow. right does that does that answer your question i think so it, yeah you talk also i think of the part about selective attention i thought it was interesting where you talked about the idea that um that there are times like that parents we we're we're often um seeing our our child is quiet they're engaged in stuff they're chilling they're doing well so we take out our phone and then we're we're in, you know we take our attention away from our child and we you know, scroll through Instagram or whatever we're doing or we check the news, you know, and, and and that you suggest that maybe sometimes taking out the phone is a good thing to do when the child is having a tantrum. Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So so it's this idea that our kids, um, they want us at this age more than they want anything. Um, and we often give them us when they're doing the thing we don't want them to do. And we take away ourselves, as you said, by taking Taking out our phone or whatever it is when they're doing the thing we want them to do. And so again, and I think it's really an important distinction to make that when your child is having a tantrum and you have already said something, you know, maybe something brief and loving and kind, that you can then say, okay, sweet, I know you're able to calm yourself down. And when you do, we can do something fun. In the meantime, I'm gonna, I'm gonna return a couple emails or, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check the news and And you don't have to remove yourself physically. And that's a very different message from, you know what? I'm I'm not doing this anymore. Forget it. And going to get your phone and sort of an angry disconnect. The selective attention piece is very kind. You're not disconnecting. You're not angry. You're just simply using it as a behavioral tool. I've given you myself. You know that I'm here. But I'm not going to sort of constantly give you more of me than I would at any other time. And this is where it, the temperament of your kid is really important. Because I've had families that try this and it really, it really doesn't work. You know, kids really amp up more. And then other families where it works really, really well. And, and the whole message of the book is that some of these tools and approaches will work for some kids some of the time. Um, and to kind of mix and match based on your child, your family, um, your circumstances. But the ideas and the principles are somewhat universal. So, for example, to think about attention, to just be intentional, to be mindful, given the podcast we're on, to be mindful about when are you giving your child your attention and what kind of attention is it and what effect does it have? Because that may differ from family to family, but it's really important nonetheless that each parent understand that a
0: little bit yeah and take that into account well I, I can talk to you about this for a long time but before we go and um I, I'd love for you to talk just a little share a li- share your story a little bit about how there are times where you know we quote unquote we can quote unquote cave in and change our minds about a, you know a boundary maybe we're holding and you share uh, a story about that and I would love if you could share that story here because I think it just makes so much sense. Sure, um, it's a really
1: nice note to end on. So thank you. I so this the story that I shared in the book, and I share over and over and over again is um, my son Henry. I believe was about three, and he called me in in the middle of the night. I think this is the story that, yeah. um, and he called me in in the middle of the night. I think it was three in the morning. He shrieked for me, and he said, um, "I uh, give me wait." Sorry, speaking of Henry. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that was Henry, who just came, I guess, to say a quick hello, despite his dad's cautioning him otherwise. We're I'm probably like keeping that in, <laughs> by all means. Um, he just ran up the stairs. Um, so, at three in the morning, Henry calls me and Mom, Mom, and I go into his room exhausted, and he says, "I need more ice in my water." Right. <laughs> and I, say, you know, and I say, "What are you? He- are you here?" Uh, Do you want to say quick hello to the podcast, but then you have to go say hi. Hi. Okay. Bye. Henry, (laughs) Close the door behind you, please. I'll be up in a couple of minutes. All right. Living the working from home, working from home dream. Keeping it real here. Keeping it real and making the story much longer than it needs to be. (laughs) three in the morning. He needs more ice in his water. I say, Henry, absolutely not. That That is not a reason to call me in at three in the morning. And he starts screaming and he's awake. He's not, I mean, he's half asleep, obviously, but he's not in a night terror or anything like that. I want more ice. It's not cold enough. It's not cold enough. And I was able, and this is the message of the book and the message I would give to families. And I'm not always able to do this, but in this moment, I was able to pause and just really, again, be intentional and think to myself, what what do I want to do? Here? I could, I could really toe the line on this and make this a huge thing that I'm not giving in on. And the reason to do that would be if then he were to learn that this was acceptable to call me in at three in the morning. Or I could just get him the ice in his water and prevent him from waking up his baby brother, prevent me from having a horrible work day the next day. And I decided to do the latter because it made a lot more sense in that moment. And I knew I would be able to get back to sleep faster, that his brother would stay sleeping. And that was the most important goal. I also knew, and this is where I think so many parents kind of get stuck in their spinning thoughts. I also knew that th- this wasn't the be all end all decision. If this was a decision that was going to result in his calling me into his room every morning at 3 a.m., I'm going to know that soon enough. I'm going to know that the next night. And then I can take a different approach. Parents get so stuck in, and I sat there and I didn't know, what do I do? What do I do? What do I not do? There's no one right answer. There's a decision that you make in the moment based on the information you have at the time And you're sort of collecting data. And if the situation happens again or doesn't happen again, then you have more information. In my case, it turns out he didn't the next night call me in for more ice at 3 in the morning. And so all was good. If he had, I would have had to address it kind of head on and taken a different approach. So that idea that you can think about each situation separately and, again, just build in that pause, um, that mindful pause, is, I think, the key to being able to handle some of this more effectively.
0: Well, Rebecca, your book is awesome. The Tantrum Survival Guide. Everyone, you should go and get it if you're struggling. It is an easy read and Rebecca is a wonderful writer. Thank you so much for the work you're doing and for coming on Mindful Mama podcast. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor. Um, I love this stuff. So yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I love Dr. Hirschberg's down-to-earth attitude. And I really mean it when I say the tantrum survival guide is very readable. So I mean it's just such a breath of fresh air knowing that this is all normal and that we will we will get through it and uh, we can we can do it better. Thanks to thanks to Dr. Hirschberg. Yay! <laughs> Before we go, I want to give a quick shout out, you know, those, um, ratings and reviews that you do really make a huge difference to help people find the podcast. So I want to give a shout out to mother Shay, who said that, uh, who gave a review on Apple podcasts. And she said that since becoming a mother a year and a half ago, I've been searching for conversations about motherhood that dive deeper about what it means to undergo this transformation. And, uh, She says she loves the podcast. Thank you so much, Mother Shay. I really, really, really appreciate that, of course. And um, before I go, I want to remind you that the Mindful Parenting free training is coming up. And this is a really powerful Mindful Parenting training. Gives you a lot of the wonderful fundamentals of Mindful Parenting. And it's live. I'll be there to live to answer your questions and to give you personal feedback. And you can join that at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And then the Mindful Parenting membership will be opening and it only opens a couple times a year. There's just a brief window when it opens. So make sure you you're, you're there when it opens so that you can be part of it. And when you join the membership, it's kind of like you get... Free, free podcasts, extra podcasts with me a month where we do Q&A and we share wins. It's really, really valuable. And you get this whole community of other people who care about this way of parenting. You may be in a community where there's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of harsh authoritarian parenting or whatever, And you might need that support to bolster what you know is right, right? What you know is backed by science and child development. So learn more at mindfulparentingcourse.com and join the free training. That's at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And finally, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you to everybody who has written to me about the daily dose and sharing your appreciation there. It's really bolstered me and my team to um, continue to do it as for as long as you know we we can and um, and I'm wishing that, you know, I'm hoping that you, dear listener, are safe I'm hoping that you're well and um, that you're just taking it day by day, keeping your attention in the here in the now, keep coming back to the present moment because when we get out of stories and the future pacing, we can really see the miracles that are right here. So that's what I'm practicing to do. And I invite you to practice to do that too, my friend. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste.
4: gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting.
0: Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for community people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation. Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You will be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship.